All right, well, let's take our Bibles and study God's Word this morning. We're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to begin a series of studies called Listen, but for this week, we're going to um, do the last study in the series we've been doing throughout the summer called People You Might Not Know, and we've been looking at people that are uh, maybe a little bit unfamiliar, maybe we haven't heard of, or maybe we've just heard of for a moment, but um, these people that we've been studying have had a significant impact on other people, whether positive or negative. In most cases, it's been positive. A couple of cases, it's been negative. And through studying them, our, our goal really has been to uh, gain some spiritual principles about the importance of how we make decisions, and also to see that the decisions we make, the determination of our heart and mind, uh, has an impact on those that are around us. How we raise our kids, how we raise all these kids that were standing up here this morning who have tremendous potential, uh, how we raise them, how we nurture them is going to impact their lives forever. What we teach them, what we show them, what we model for them, uh, negative and positively, is going to impact their hearts. It's going to affect how they live. So we're going to finish this series by looking at two women this morning who have their names listed once in the Bible. Wouldn't it be cool to have your name listed in the Bible? That'd be a, a neat distinction to be able to have you look through the Bible and there's the name Paul Rhodes. And hopefully Paul Rhodes didn't do something really, really bad or stupid like Ahab and Jezebel and Judas and Diotrephes and Demas and all those other people we kind of look at and go, ooh, bad decisions. But these two women are listed once. And it's not like we have whole chapters detailing who they are, what they did, what they said, how they prayed. We don't have much detail. All we have here is this one verse, and it gives us almost no information about them. They're, one of them is referred to in Acts 16, but really everything we know about these women is right here in 2 Timothy 1. And yet, there's so much, and this is the, the wonder of the Word and the depth of the Word and how the Holy Spirit teaches us through the Word. We can learn so much from them uh, in terms of how they lived and what they did. So let's read 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1 and start in verse 1. I'm having a little trouble seeing this morning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus... To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful, verse 5, of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Now, this second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, because we've got First and Second Timothy, right? The second letter is much more personal. And it is also much more fervent. Not that the first one is boring by any stretch. Not that there's not passion in the first one. But as Paul writes the second letter to Timothy from jail, there is a great emphasis 
on perseverance and a great emphasis on the sufficiency of God because Timothy at this point is struggling to the extent that he wants to quit the ministry. And Paul knows that at any moment he can be executed. This is the last letter that he wrote that we have recorded. These are the final words that we have from Paul uh, in terms of his epistles. So 2 Timothy is it. And he writes to Timothy, Timothy's in crisis, Timothy's personally emotionally spent, Paul is at the end of his ministry, nobody's coming to visit him, he's alone, he's trying to witness to the guards and and be a positive influence and write letters to churches and and to people and strengthen them. But, But this is the final chapter here. And there's a very passionate call. I love the book of 2 Timothy. It's one of my favorite books because it is a passionate call to to not only recognize the eroding spiritual climate of the world, which 2,000 years ago wasn't as bad as it is now. Not only to recognize that, but also to, to become very urgent about the work of ministry. Now, Paul and Timothy had developed a really close friendship, and they had worked together in ministry, and Paul really had become a mentor to Timothy. You would almost say that he was like an older brother, or or almost even a, a father figure to Timothy. Because Timothy's father, his relationship with his dad was not great. Acts 16 tells us that his father was a Greek, and his father was not a believer. So there was strain there because of what Timothy had done, because of his faith. And, and not only does he not have the spiritual support from his father, but uh, the implication from Scripture is maybe there was a little bit of tension and hostility there, that his dad wasn't approving of what Timothy was doing. And here Timothy's wandering around the world with this uh, apostle Paul, and, and they're doing work of ministry, and they're getting into crisis, and their lives are being threatened. And I'm sure as he communicated with his dad somehow that, that there was some expression there of, of disappointment and dissatisfaction. Action. So it made sense that he would latch on to Paul, that there would be a relationship there, and he would really look up to Paul personally and spiritually. But Paul was not the only person who was speaking into Timothy's life. And we see that here in chapter 1 and verse 5. There were two women who had greatly influenced him well before he ever met Paul. One was his grandmother, Lois, and the other was his mother, Eunice. And the Bible says here in chapter 1, verse 5, that they had exemplified a sincere faith in the Lord that had laid a spiritual foundation for Timothy's faith. So as Paul's, uh, excuse me, as Timothy is struggling with his desire, struggling with his commitment, wanting to give up, wanting to quit, wanting to bail on all of it, Paul reminds him of their example. And he says, Timothy, remember the faith that your mom had. Remember the faith that your grandmother had. Listen, you got to stir it up again. You got to kindle afresh that fire in your heart, and you got to get back to the work of ministry because there's always going to be opposition. There's always going to be stress. You're always going to feel worn down by ministry, but you've got to keep going. Now, so much of what was discouraging Timothy was uh, the spiritual warfare, which is constant, but also really the the carnal nature of the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was strong, but it had a, a great influence in the culture of the time. Ephesus was a very pagan city, a lot of temples to gods. And Timothy's trying to minister in that area, and he's discouraged because not only does he see cultural depravity, but he sees that creeping into the body. 
And he sees a lot of worldliness and a lot of people that are, that are not walking with Christ. And as he does that, he, he starts to get kind of discouraged by it. And Paul writes to him in chapter 3 and says, this is indicative of the last days. Men will be lovers of self. Men will pursue the things that they want. They'll have a, a form of godliness, but, but they won't really hold on to the truth. They'll act like they're saved, but they won't really live that way. And then to top it, there was a lot of arguing and bickering in the church because there's always arguing and bickering where worldliness comes in. So there was infighting and there was debate about theology and there was undermining of Timothy's leadership and there was a disagreement on how people should live and what they should do and what they should abstain from and what they shouldn't abstain from. It was just a complete mess. And Paul apparently, between First and Second Timothy, wrote to Paul, excuse me, Timothy wrote to Paul and said, I'm done. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I wish you were here. I wish you could come and, and, and talk to these people. I wish you could exhort them. I'm not as good as you, Paul. I mean, we just have to imagine what he wrote, but you can really understand from the way Paul writes back what Timothy must have said. I wish I had more training. I wish they respected me. I wish I was older because it just doesn't seem like they take me seriously. Paul, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm burnt out. I'm spent. They're, they're hitting me. They're undermining me. They're arguing. They're worldly. I can't do it anymore. Any way you can get out of jail and come talk to these people. Because honestly, I'm at the end of my rope. There's nothing left. I need to quit. That's what he must have written. Paul writes back and says, nope. You can't do that. This kind of opposition is always difficult. Spiritual warfare is always a battle. It's always something we're, we're fighting against. But when we're faithfully serving the Lord and those around us are living selfishly, we get a little jealous, don't we? We know it doesn't make sense. We know we shouldn't be jealous, but our pride gets involved, and we get a little frustrated, and we get even a little bit bitter, and we say, you know what, I'm trying to be faithful to the Lord, and, and people around me aren't, and they don't recognize the need for it, and, and I'm just frustrated. And one of the final ways that the devil tempts us in that is to say, you're all by yourself. And you need to feel a little sorry for yourself, and you know what, that, that sorrow seems righteous, and then we start to say, you know what, if nobody else is going to be faithful, maybe I shouldn't be. And we start to fade away from our calling and our responsibility. Now that's exactly, as you start chapter 1, verse 1, that's exactly where Timothy is. And I want you to see that Paul really doesn't waste any time. He says, it's me, I'm writing, I'm writing to you. I, I love you, I appreciate you, I'm praying for you, but let's get right down to brass tacks, Timothy. He's, he's very loving, but he's very firm. That's good teaching, that's good discipline. When we can be loving but firm, we know that the, that the firmness of the discipline is tempered by love, but love doesn't always excuse, love has a discipline to it. So when you read the book of 2 Timothy, I encourage you to do it this week. This is such a wonderful book of Scripture. Notice Paul's tone. Notice how he just shows love and appreciation and gratitude for Timothy. I'm praying for you. I'm weeping just thinking about you. I just, I'm so grateful for you. You've been such a, a great young uh, mentee for me. You, you just, it's just been wonderful, Timothy, to know you. I'm probably not going to see you again, but I want you to know how much I appreciate you. But... I'm not just going to pat you on the back. 
Because you wrote to me and said, you're about done. And I'm going to tell you, you're not done. So let me tell you, Timothy, what you need to do. And I want you to see just how, I just was struck by the beauty of this passage. How the Spirit of God guides Paul's words here. And how he directs Paul to remind Timothy of four things. Look at it very quickly in verses 3 and 4. He reminds him of his faith. His faith was influenced by godly women in his life. We'll look at that in a minute. He reminds him of his calling. He says, your calling is genuine. It's obvious. I affirmed it. I, I stood there and laid my hands on you. And, and, and I commissioned you for ministry. You belong to me. I'm the one that trained you and discipled you. And then I put my hands on you and said, the Spirit of God is on you. You go out. So Timothy, remember your calling. And then he says, your spiritual gifting is unmistakable. But here's the thing, Timothy. You've got to get the fire back in your heart. You've got to get that burning desire for ministry. And look at the phrase. He says, it needs to be kindled afresh. Sometimes we need to earnestly pray to the Lord to kindle the spiritual fire in our lives. Because how many know that it burns out? How many know that it kind of goes down to embers and we're kind of running on fumes and we're saying, well, Lord, I want to serve you, but, but I don't know. I'm kind of worn out. I'm kind of tired. And we haven't taken time in the Word to refresh ourselves. We haven't taken time in prayer to refresh ourselves. We've been away from the body and we're not refreshed in our spirit. And we're kind of running on empty. David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sometimes we take our salvation for granted. And we think, well, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven and what's the problem? I'm, I'm doing good. But the devil tries to steal our joy. He tries to diminish the spiritual confidence that we have. So when we actually serve the Lord, he really goes after us. The devil's going to go after you from day one. The day you got saved to right now, he's been trying to undermine your faith. He's been trying to zap your confidence. He's been trying to dissuade you that what you believe is right. But then when you start really serving him, that's when he gets very, very serious about his attack. This is why 1,500 pastors a month quit. 50 a day. It's why 10%, I saw the statistic this week, it's why 10% of pastors retire as a pastor. It's why 70% battle depression. It's why 7,000 churches every year close. Because when we get down to the work of doing ministry, the devil says, oh, you're really serious about your faith. Well, let me work on that. This is why prayer is so Important because in those times we have to go to the Lord and we have to say, Lord, refresh me, kindle me, just just stoke it up again. It's why we call, uh, we say this church, this is a place to be refreshed. I want you when you leave this morning to walk out going, oh, it's good to serve the Lord. I was really beat up and tired and depressed when I walked in, but I was in the presence of the Lord today. I got to praise him. I got to sing to him. I got to give to him. I got to fellowship with other believers who are saved by him. I got to study his word. We got to pray. And now I am ready for the week. Kindle afresh the fire that is in you, Timothy. Recommit yourself to the work of the Lord. See, denying that inclination where we only want to give a little bit or we only want to do what's comfortable, it is far too easy 
to, to, to put faithfulness to the Lord and to the ministry to the side because life is hectic or because we're discouraged, but we have to resist that. And Paul says in chapter 2, look at it, it's in verse uh, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. He says, you got to fight like a soldier, and you got to strive like an athlete, and you got to work like a farmer. No believer is immune from this temptation and this attack. So 2 Timothy is a dissertation on why it happens and what it looks like, and then it's an exhortation to overcome it and be faithful to his calling. That's why Paul says at the outset, Timothy, uh-uh, you're not going to hear from me, yep, it's too hard, quit. You're not going to hear from me, well, those people are lousy and we should have known that. Maybe I'll send you over to Colossae and you can just kind of do your best, but we got to get you out of He says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to patronize you. I'm not going to allow you to stay in the place that you are. I'm going to tell you, you got to think back now to the legacy of your family. You got to think about your mom and your grandmother because their faith has been exemplified in your own home. I've always thought, as I've studied this passage, how cool it is that Paul kind of draws a personal application for Timothy. But until this week, I had never thought about why he specifies them. And I had never realized how verse 5 connects to verse 7. So look, look at it for a minute. Because I was studying this, and the Spirit really impressed upon my mind to think about the cultural and relational implications of these women's life. It couldn't have been easy for them. In fact, there's every indication that standing for Christ and influencing Timothy had knowingly put them in a very difficult position. Now, as we look at Middle Eastern culture, we see that it is very male-dominant. Women in the Middle East are wearing burqas. They can't show their faces. They can't be seen. And, and, and it's, there's very much a, a paternalistic culture in the Middle East. And it was no different in the first century. In the Greek culture or in the Jewish culture. In the Greek culture, women could attain some level of education. They had some role in society. But it was, uh, they, were, they were far from equal to the men. Now, this is hard for us to understand, and we've been uh, seeing throughout the last 30 years the fight for women's rights, women's liberation, and, and we know that there's still not an equality in a lot of ways in the business world. But we've never seen it like this. Women were basically nothing in the Greek culture. They were only to be seen in the company of their husbands, and the general rule was that women should stay secluded and silent. They didn't have any freedom to determine their own lives. And it was so bad that either Socrates or Plato, we don't know which of them said it, said men thanked the gods that they were not uncivilized, not slaves, and not women. So the Greek culture didn't exactly elevate the woman. The Jewish culture was, was almost worse. It was one of the most male-dominated cultures in the world. Women had uh, rights only in the home. And even that was very limited. They had almost no education. The man had authority over his wife and his daughters in terms of their activities, their relationships. Anything that they did, the man had control over it. Women were sold for a dowry. 
to another man. They had no say in the matter. They couldn't say, well, I really like him. He's really cute. I I think he's a quality person. The father determined, you're my daughter. You're going to marry him. Give me three or four sheep, and the deal's done. And from that moment on, she was betrothed. The woman was treated in Jewish culture in the first century as, quote, a gentle slave. So a Greek man who was married to a Jewish woman could play either card. The Greek card was women should be silent and out of the way. And the Jewish card was you basically have no rights. So if I give you any rights, it's because I'm Greek and we're a little bit more tolerant in our culture. So just be glad for that. So a Jewish woman, I hope you're following this, in a Greek home who was teaching her son about the Lord God of Israel, who was teaching her son about salvation through Jesus Christ, would be putting herself in a very challenging situation. And Timothy's dad would have been culturally justified to tell Eunice not only to be quiet and not only to not tell Timothy about the Bible and about Jesus. He really had a cultural right even to say, this is worthy of death. I'm going to report you, we're going to take you, and you're going to be fed to the lions. And that would have been even worse when he found out what Jesus taught about women. Because while the Greek culture was restrictive, and the Jewish culture was beyond restrictive, when he found out Jesus' view, which was far more radical, because it valued women greatly. Jesus didn't show partiality. In fact, he ministered to and was friends with many women, including former prostitutes, including people whose reputation was not strong. Most of his strongest disciples outside of the 12 were women. He talked to women. He healed women. He ministered to women, including a Samaritan woman at the well who he challenged and brought to faith in him. He used women as illustrations of faith and faithfulness as a teaching, and he commended them for their love for God. So if Timothy's dad was at all hostile to Christianity and at all rooted in his cultural bias that women were worth nothing, imagine when his wife Eunice started to train Timothy to love God. And imagine with his mother-in-law, good grief, you imagine the tension there, when his mother-in-law got involved and took Eunice's side and started to tell him, listen, we don't want to follow Greek culture. We want to teach young Timothy about Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the tension? Imagine what was going on in that house. So relationally, Timothy's dad may have felt ganged up on. He may have felt like his wife was being disrespectful, like like the, the relationship in the house was strained. And so it would have been worse when Timothy then trusts in Jesus Christ and goes out to do the work of ministry and starts to serve the Lord. Now everything had gotten strained and tense. But Paul says, listen, even with the tension with your dad, even with the cultural opposition, Timothy, I want you to hearken back to what your mom and grandmother did, to what they showed, and the extent to which you have faith in Christ in many ways is because of their influence. Now, connect verse 5 to verse 7 and look at it again. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love 
and discipline. That verse seems a lot more personal now, doesn't it? That's not just the verse that we take out and put on the plaque and say, boy, that's good. I quote that verse. I love that verse. It is a fantastic verse. And, and boy, that, that really, that's the, that's the motto for my life. God's not giving us a spirit of timidity, power, love, self-discipline, and I'm going to stand strong for the Lord. But, but as I studied this week, I thought the connection back to verse 5 is unmistakable because Timothy could look at his mom and his grandmother and say they were never timid about their faith, even with the culture and relational opposition. They stood strong for me. They stood strong for their faith. And they had uh, so much courage that now as I'm facing opposition and now people relationally are hitting me and now I'm not being accepted by people, now I can go back and say, look, I have faith in Christ. I need to kindle it afresh. And I have the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life. And I can do the work of ministry like my mom and grandmother did. Paul knew what he was doing when he wrote this. He says, look, if your mom and grandmother could do it, Timothy, you can stand strong. You need to influence other people the way they influenced you. Now, let's ask two questions because I want to apply this and pray. Let's ask two questions so we can start to draw this into our lives. The first question is, what if they hadn't done this? What if they hadn't done this? And the second question is, what's the big deal that they did? What if they hadn't done this, and what's the big deal that they did? Now, let's answer each quickly, but start with the first one. What if they hadn't taught him this way? You may remember the movie, and I very rarely quote movies, so forgive me if, if uh, this bothers you. But you may remember the, the premise of the movie, Back to the Future. And back to the future, someone went back and altered the course of history. And the premise was that if you alter the course of history, it might mean that someone was never born or someone did not turn out the way they would have because different decisions produced different outcomes. Now, we know that God is sovereign. We know God uh, will, will do what he wants to do, but he also gives us a will. He also gives us the ability to make decisions and choices based on our convictions and based on our heart. So just for the sake of discussion this morning, if you're a Calvinist, you're frustrated with me, but that's okay because we'll still go to heaven together. Just for the sake of argument, what if Lois and Eunice hadn't loved the Lord? What if they hadn't stood up for their faith? What if they had been timid? What would Timothy have believed and become? Would he have been inclined toward the gospel? Would he have received Christ when he did? Would he have desired to leave his home and go and serve with Paul and go around the world and have his life threatened and be challenged and watched his best friend be put in jail and have his head cut off? Would, would he have done that? Would he have given his life to the work of ministry? See, it's far less common for someone to follow Christ. Listen now, it's far less common for someone to follow Christ if their parents don't love Christ. It's far less common for someone to follow Christ if they haven't been taught about the Lord. That's not superseding the work of the Holy Spirit. He can convict anyone spiritually, but it is a logical reality. If you did not grow up in a Christian home, you did not probably receive Christ at nine like I did. 
You may have come to Christ later in life. Somebody witnessed to you or another family member spoke to you or maybe your parents got saved. But if you were not raised in a Christian home, and many of you were not, you didn't give your heart to Christ early. So Timothy, imagine if Lois and Eunice had not loved the Lord. What would his life have become? See, the spiritual influence we have as parents is profound. So what are our children learning from us? What are they seeing exemplified in our lives? Do they see a real love for the Lord? Do they see a deep, unshakable faith? Do do they see a commitment to holiness that is unwavering? Do, Do they see genuine care for others? Do they see a strong personal witness with our words in our life? Or do they see selfishness and worry and fear and worldliness and moral compromise and timidity about being open about our faith? See, what strikes me about Lois and Eunice is that they were strong and intentional about their spiritual influence. So knowing Timothy's dad was a Greek and wasn't a believer, they said to themselves, God has entrusted us with this young man. God has put him in our home. And we have to accept the responsibility, not only to live out our own faith, but to teach him and to train him to know and love the Lord. So when the time comes and he falls under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he will be ready and he will be receptive. Parents, this is our responsibility and we have to take it seriously, especially in this culture. This culture, and you've heard me talk about it many times, I don't want to be redundant, but this culture is brutal to our kids. This culture is going after our kids like never before, and it has more resources and more vehicles to do it than have ever been produced by mankind. So we are called to teach and train and admonish them spiritually. We are called to protect their hearts and minds and to guide them in truth. We cannot coddle them. We cannot think that they'll make the right decisions because they're good kids. We have to train them in the way that they should go so when they were old, tell me the rest of it. They will not depart from it. Train them, minister to them, help them, pray for them, encourage them, nurture them, admonish them, correct them. This is our role as parents, and it's daunting and humbling and scary because we're fighting against so much, and yet God is faithful. Timothy was a follower of Jesus Christ. He was a pivotal friend and fellow laborer to Paul. And much of the reason for that, much of the reason he became the pastor in the Ephesian church was because his mom and grandmother had influenced him to love Jesus Christ. And that is so powerful because without them, we would not be studying this book this morning. Without them, we would not know Timothy's names. So will our kids' lives point back to us? Will the lives of other people around us point back to us? What's our influence? Second question. The second question seems almost a little crass, but I think we have to ask it. What's the big deal? 
Okay, so they had sincere faith, and they showed an example to Timothy. A lot of people have spiritual influence in their kids' lives. Well, besides the fact that the Spirit of God takes time to mention them by name as an example, it's really important for us to understand as we conclude that really loving Jesus Christ and raising kids to really love Jesus Christ, not just go to church, not just be religious, it, 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 to really love Jesus Christ and to raise kids to really love Jesus Christ is not normal. It is increasingly unusual. The other day, my daughter Annie had been asked by a teacher in school, what have you done lately that's extraordinary? And she was standing in the kitchen on, on a Friday, and she said, um, have I done anything extraordinary lately? Or, or ever? What have I done that's extraordinary? And I was reading through this passage and kind of making some notes at the time. And without making the connection at all, because I'm a little slow, I just answered, sometimes just being faithful is extraordinary. And immediately the Holy Spirit said, look down at your Bible. That's 1 Timothy 1.5, or 2 Timothy 1.5. Sometimes just being faithful is extraordinary. The Lord may never use you and me in a powerful worldwide ministry that impacts thousands. I've kind of come to the place at 50 where I say to myself, I I'm probably not going to have a ministry around the world that impacts thousands of people, and I think I'm grateful for that. Many people have done that and not had their names in the Bible. Some may even be part of the group that gets to heaven and God says, depart from me. I never knew you. You, you prophesied in my name, but you didn't love me. So most of us in this room, maybe all of us, will never have kind of international impact. But look at these two women in this text because the Lord points to them and says, look at their example. They had sincere, unashamed faith that was not hidden despite the opposition. They, they wisely and intentionally nurtured Timothy's spirit so he'd be receptive to the gospel. There was no resentment. There was no bitterness. They didn't show anger uh, in, in Timothy's presence. They, they didn't, uh, when he had a nasty place in ministry and he's kind of wanting to chuck it all, they, he doesn't look back and go, well, my, my mom and my grandmother quit. Paul says to Timothy, look at them. Look at what they did. Look at how they stood for the Lord. Timothy, you can do that too. Oh, it's so beautiful. I pray that the Lord will stir us with that kind of influence on others. Especially our kids. We just saw 30 or 40 kids standing up here. That, that we would have influence on those children. As their parents, as their family members, as their Sunday school teachers, as their Awana listener, as people who just see them in the hallway and, how you doing? Good to see you. What's going on? And that it's not just a blow-off. Really, how you doing? How's school going? Tell me what I can pray for you about. And the kid may look at you and go, what? Somebody's asking me what they can pray for me about? I guarantee you that if you say to a child, what can I pray for you about? They'll give you something. We adults were like, nothing, I'm good, everything's great, thank you so much, see you next Sunday. Kids are honest, right? It's what I love about them. What's going on in your life? Well, you know, Billy at school, he hit me with a rock the other day, and he pushed me down, he doesn't really like me, and my teacher's giving me a hard time, and 
I don't know, I'm really struggling. You know what? I can pray for you about that. Have we asked? See, the spiritual influence that we can have on children is like the spiritual influence that Lois and Eunice had on Timothy. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, I commend those who are faithful in a little because when you're faithful in a little, I'll be faithful to you in a lot. If you will be faithful to me in the things that I give you, I will give you much blessing. Listen, that's the call to us this morning. To be faithful in whatever the Lord has given us, whether it's parenting or ministry work, whether it's being set apart in a culture that increasingly hates Jesus Christ, whatever it is, like Lois and Eunice, that we would hold a sincere faith that we'd be unwavering in our conviction, that we set an example of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Listen, you and I will never have our names in the Bible. It's already written. It's done. The name Paul Rhodes will never be in Scripture. But the Bible says that if we're faithful in a little, that when we get to heaven, Jesus will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't need my name in the Bible, and neither do you. Because these women are an example of how we can be blessed by God and used by God if we are faithful. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather hear those words from Jesus than have one verse in Scripture. When we stand before the Lord, is He going to look at us and say, You know what? Your faith was sincere. And you persevered, and you did the work of ministry, and I know it was hard. And you stood for me in a culture that despised my name. And you were faithful, and you were holy, and you loved me. And you know what? I'm so glad you're here. Good job. Well done. You stood for me, and now I'm going to stand before you before my Father in heaven, and I'm going to say, this is my child. May God help us to live that way.